Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Financial Independence Podcast, the podcast that gets inside the brains of some of the best and brightest in personal finance to find out how they achieved financial independence. On today's show, I'm super excited to welcome back one of the most popular past guests, and it is Ramit Sethi from IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com. And Ramit came on the show about three years ago, and it was hilarious, and I knew that he was the only man for this discussion. And this is something that I'm going to be focusing on a lot this year, I think, because I see this as a big problem in the FIRE community, and it's definitely a big problem with me personally, and it's the fact that when people are so good at saving, they're not usually as good at spending. And I've hung out with many multimillionaires that act like broke college students, and if you aren't able to relax and enjoy your money after you achieve FI, I don't really know when you can, and this is something I'm personally trying to work on, and I've been trying to work on for the past few years, but I knew Ramit would be the person to give the tough love that I need, and I know a lot of other people out there probably need as well, so I'm thrilled to have him back, and I know this is going to be a really fun conversation, so without further delay, Ramit, thank you so much for coming back onto the show. Thanks for having me back. So it's been over three years since our last interview, which is crazy. It seems like yesterday. And you've been really busy with some new stuff since then, which I'm excited to talk to you about. But there's one particular topic that we touched on back in our first interview that I really want to dive into today because I think it's a huge problem in the fire community. And it's a problem that I know I have. And it is the fact that fire people aren't very good at knowing what to spend on. We're great at knowing what not to spend on, as you mentioned in our interview last time, but we're not good at knowing what to spend on. And since we talked, I've been really working hard at this over the last couple of years, and I want to talk through that. But you are the perfect man to push me further and hopefully push everyone in the audience further, because I'm sure this is not a unique problem to me. What do you think about that? I think that's true. I think that a lot of people have been taught. Well, I think that the world teaches us to save, but nobody teaches us to spend. And if you take that concept of frugality to the logical extreme, then you start to see saving money as a virtue and spending money as a sin. And it's not. That's not how it is. In fact, the point of living a rich life is not to save money. It's not. The point of a rich life, in my opinion, is to design a rich life that excites you and then use your money to live as meaningful of a life as you can. So I'm all for a high savings rate and aggressive investments and earning more. I'm totally for that. But there's another side of the equation that too many people ignore, and that's what I've been very excited about. This is interesting because your site is I Will Teach You To Be Rich. Your book is I Will Teach You To Be Rich. And I've always read that as I Will Teach You To Become Rich. But it was only recently, as I'm getting into your podcast more and I'm getting into the journal you just released, that I realized that it actually is, I will teach you to be rich. And that's very different than becoming rich. That's right. And my question is, was that intentional? Because obviously you started the site way back in the day. But were you thinking about that way back then? Or are you thinking of it in the same terms as I was, as I would teach you to become rich? It is about being rich. And I think that we should live a rich life today and an even richer life tomorrow. So I don't like the idea of I have to wait until I'm 75 years old and maybe, just maybe, I can go take that Alaskan cruise or treat my family to a nice dinner. I don't want to live that kind of life. 
And so, yeah, it's about being rich. And being rich can happen even if you have credit card debt. You can still be rich. So the next question that naturally comes up is, what is rich? And I think this is where it gets really interesting. This concept of rich, for a lot of people, the first images that pop up in their head are, you know, being chauffeured around in the back of a limo, wearing some fur coat, and eating on some table that holds like 70 people with some butler. I'm like, guys, that's Hollywood. That's Richie Rich. That's not reality. A rich life is so diverse. It could be buying a beautiful coat. It could be traveling two months a year. It could be having the freedom to pick up your kids from school every afternoon. So a rich life is yours. It's not mine. It's yours, and you define what it is. And if we start from that premise, that you decide what your rich life is, and suddenly it becomes a lot more exciting to be able to use money to live that life. Absolutely. Okay. And, and that's why I'm so excited to have you on. And you're the only person that I could think of to get on for this sort of topic. So over the past couple of years, you've released a couple of things that are actually very helpful for this goal. So if you could, since I'm going to be referencing them so many times, would you just tell the audience who may not be familiar with your podcast and your new journal, what those both are about? And then obviously, I'll be using those a lot as we continue this discussion. Yeah. So uh, initially I wrote my book, I Will Teach You To Be Rich. It came out in 2009. I re-released it, the 10-year edition in 2019. And I had added about 80 pages of material, a lot of money psychology, new material. Also things had changed in the world and things had changed in my life. I had gotten married and I had become much more interested in money and relationships. As I started to talk about this, I realized that I wanted more material on this. And I wanted to help people get more excited about money. I use that word excited intentionally because when you ask the average person, what words come to mind when you think of money? They go stress, overwhelm, guilt, am I too late, or restriction. I know you fire guys love the word restriction. Oh, I love They actually love it. I love it. It's like someone who has a little scab on their arm and they go, ooh, I'm going to pick at this scab. It's like, stop it, man. You know, okay, you can restrict a little bit, but it's not the point of money. So a couple of things that I did. First, I created a podcast. And the podcast is called I Will Teach You Be Rich. And on this podcast, you can actually hear me talking to real couples. I'll just share one example of a couple who has $825,000 in debt. And they're worried that they can't afford to have children. On the other hand, you have a couple who has over $10 million of net worth, and they still agonize over the price of blueberries. <laughs> and they still, they can't go on a vacation that they want to. They only go where the points will allow them. And I go, at what point do you get to actually enjoy your money? $10 million and you can't even choose the country you want to go visit? So here's the thing about this podcast. Most of us have never actually heard a couple sharing real numbers and the fights that they've had for 25 years, the tears, the joys, and actually getting on the same page. You may have seen a blog post, but you've never actually heard a real couple doing it. And so because of our reach, we can find these people and they trust us enough to know that they're willing to come on the show and share it. So that's the podcast along with the new journal that I released. Yeah, before we move on to the journal, I just want to say the podcast is incredible. I would say it's sort of like being in a 
psychiatrist office and the couple are on the couch and you're there like assessing it and you're just eavesdropping on this really personal conversation. And yes, some of the higher net worth episodes have been really, really useful to me, which we're going to talk about. But yeah, the entertainment value and just feeling like you're sort of eavesdropping on this very private conversation because you have a you have a psych background a little bit, don't you? I do. I do. Although this isn't therapy, but yes, when I talk about the money with these couples, we will often end up at, you know, what were the words that they remember their mom and dad saying about money? And oh, oh my gosh, there was a recent episode. There was a couple that lives in the Midwest and they make a very good salary, they make $130,000 and they cannot figure out why they are constantly behind and in debt. And at one point, the dad tells me about his daughter coming home from school and her school had given her like one of those baskets of food that you would give a child who doesn't have enough food at home, who's food insecure. And he was like, full of rage. He was angry. How could they give her that? We are not poor. We make $130,000 a year. And so I started talking to him. I said, how'd you grow up with money? He tells me, well, when I grew up, we didn't have a lot. And there were the haves and the have nots. The haves were on the other side of the park. They were the doctors, the lawyers, the people with the big house. We didn't have anything. Now, as he's grown up, he makes a very good income. The way he talks about money, he still believes he doesn't have enough. He still acts as if he doesn't have enough. And there's a lot of peculiar behaviors that people without money carry into their adulthood. And when his daughter asks him about spending money, he says, we can't afford it. So it's no surprise that when his daughter goes to school and the teachers ask, how are things going? She says, we can't afford it. And finally, this was the most haunting moment. I asked him, would you talk to your daughter about money? And he looked startled. He essentially said, why would I talk about money with her? Essentially, I am protecting her from money. Just think about that. In his view, money is a bad thing. It's evil. It causes problems and stress. And therefore, I'm going to protect my innocent daughter from having to deal with it. But that's not how wealthy people treat money. That's not how someone who's living a rich life treats money. Somebody, think about somebody who's like very good with food. Okay. They love to eat healthy food. They're going to talk about food with their kids. Oh, come on. Let's cut this garlic together. We eat this because it tastes good and it mixes well with that. How come we don't do that with money? And so when I suggested to him that there are a lot of people who talk to their kids about money, he was bewildered. Why would you talk to your kids about money? Because in his view, money is something to protect kids from. Wow. Yeah. You see people acting how they act with money and even, you know, how I act with money and how some other fire people act with money. And you don't really think about what had gone into making them act that way with money and what they're still carrying around. And it seems like most of our money views and how we deal with having money or having no money all stem from how money was when we were children. Yeah, it definitely does. And it's a funny wrinkle in human psychology that even if we are acting in a way that is not serving us, our mind will create a narrative where we end up being virtuous. So take someone who has $10 million, just as an extreme example, and they are driving all over town to compare the price of gas. And I go, hmm, what do you think of that? And they'll say something like this. Well, you know, I don't like to waste money. 
or it's not that I drive around for everything. I'm just selective. (laughs) So we come up with these words that make us seem virtuous when in reality, as a third party, I'm going, you're nuts. (laughs) You made more in interest by lunchtime than you would save over the course of five months of driving around to save 10 cents on gas. Why are we doing this? And more importantly, what are you not allowing yourself to do by focusing on these $3 questions instead of the $30,000 questions? And it's comfortable because you know all that one gas station on Main Street always has a good deal and it's comfortable and you have mastery of it. But actually, at a certain point, you have won that game. You've won it. And maybe it's time to turn the page and go on to a new chapter in life. And that's where your journal comes in. So please talk about that because that is just recently released. And it is pretty much the ideal workbook for coming up with that. So if you could just tell the audience who may not be familiar with it, what you just released with the IWT journal. So believe it or not, fire people, some people actually are never going to buy a book and compare the difference between a Roth IRA and a traditional IRA. I know it's crazy. I know. But I learned this myself. I'm like, why don't you guys just buy this book? And in fact, get it from the library. You'll solve all your money problems. And there are a lot of people that are just like, "Mm, I'm not going to do that. I go, all right, I get it. We have to remember that most people are not buying any book, much less a money book. And it seems a little ironic because by the time people are 40, pretty much their number one worry in life is money. So you go, well, why don't you just read this book or listen to that podcast, YouTube? And there's a variety of reasons people don't. But I don't want to sit here and berate people. Well, that's not true. I do a little bit. (laughs) But what I want to do is help them start to live their rich life. And so I created this journal, and it's called a No Numbers Journal. So you get it, and I want you to imagine giving yourself the gift of 15 minutes, your favorite cup of coffee, a quiet room, and you get to sit down and dream. You get to dream about how you want to use your money. It's not about your savings rate. It's not about the Trinity study. It's none of that. It's about if I could spend more on something that would make my life easier, what would it be? It's about pulling a pen out and sketching out what your ideal day would be or even your ideal house And yes, there is parts about what should I not spend on or how should I navigate money and relationships? It's tactile. And I wanted people to start connecting their money with their lives. I can tell you that most people don't get motivated by seeing a higher figure in their checking account. I know some people do. Personally, I love it. Okay, I like it. So that's why I don't hate the FIRE community, but I understand a lot of it because I like a high savings rate. I like seeing compound interest, and I get that. But most people are not like that. Most people are like, I actually want to go out to this really nice restaurant and know that I can pay for it without worrying. Okay, great. Well, let's start there. And when people start to engage with this journal, it's just a much more relatable way of clarifying what a rich life is to you. And then for some people, they decide, hey, I want to start optimizing my money and make it work for me. Yeah. And I have a copy and we actually got some good weather here in Scotland over the summer. And I really enjoyed just sitting out there with a cup of coffee in the sun, (sighs) going through it with my wife, Jill, and trying to really think about it because 
it is way harder to figure that out, especially when, you know, we're so lucky we've reached financial independence, we can spend on these things. But yeah, as a frugal person, naturally frugal, just my entire life, it is way more difficult to sort of push myself in those areas. But it has been helpful. And that's why the podcast and the journal have been really helpful. So I definitely just wanted to set those up because I'm going to be referencing them a lot. But I think before we dive in, maybe just give you a quick update of what's changed since 2019. Yes, tell me. Yeah. So we talked in 2019. And I think for the prior 10 years to 2019, we averaged the same amount of annual spend. Um, And you will be happy to know that over 2021 and 2022, it looks like we're doubling that value for our annual spend. So I've heard you on other podcasts where you're like, you know, people who say they want to change and like get better at spending, they don't really mean it. But I, I actually do mean it. And we've actually worked pretty hard at doing that. 2021, we traveled a lot more and spent a lot more than we would have on that travel. We experimented like we did premium economy to the States. And then we did business class on the way home just to try those both out and compare them. And then 2022, we just moved into a new house and I've been kidding it out. And even my wife, one day, another Amazon box arrived and Jill was like, what is happening? And I was like, this spending thing is incredible. I don't know what I've been missing for the last 40 years of my life. So I've been really enjoying it. And I feel like I've made a lot of progress. But there's still ways to go because even though we've doubled our annual spend, we're still not even spending what the portfolio could generate at a very conservative withdrawal rate. And it doesn't account for any sort of income that's coming in. So I am still trying to push myself, but I just wanted to let you know that thanks to our conversation in 2019, I have been making progress and it's been so fun and way, way more enjoyable than I expected. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving me the update. And what makes me happiest to hear that is that you're having fun doing it, which is the point. Money is supposed to be fun and that you're doing it together with your wife. That is amazing. That is the culmination. You know, when it comes to money, I've learned at the very beginning levels, it's all about the what. I made a little money. What do I get to buy or what do I want to do with it? And that's totally cool. I have no problem. You want to buy a beautiful coat or take a trip. Amazing. I love it. But at the highest levels of personal finance, it is always about the who. Who do I get to bring with me? Who do I get to surprise or delight? And to hear that you're doing it with your family is just the culmination of what a rich life really should be. So congratulations. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, it's been great. And before we dive into some of the, the newer stuff I've learned from your podcast and your journal, I want to revisit something you said in our first interview. And it was something that made me think you were a lunatic at the time, but I get it now. And that was why pay less when you could pay more. That's right. And I was like, yeah, you're going to have to explain that. And still didn't, I don't think I really got it. And it was only recently that we just moved into this new place and I love pour over coffee. That's like my morning ritual. I love just making it. I love drinking it. I love buying the beans. I love everything about it. And I've been waiting until we moved into a place where I could get a proper grinder because I thought that was the coffee grounds were the only thing that were holding me back because I couldn't get a really consistent grind. So I bought this thing that is probably the nicest you can get without going commercial. And it is amazing. It is the nicest thing to look at, the nicest thing to touch. Like, I just love pressing the button. I love pulling out the tray. I love everything about it. And I don't think I really understood that before. I would have just picked the cheapest thing that does the job. And this has shown me that 
there's a whole other level that it just like brings you so much joy that doesn't even relate to the actual functionality of the thing, just the actual beauty of it and the design. <laughs> and so I get that now. And my question to you is, I want to find more of that. But for me, it's hard to distinguish between quality and status. Like, is a Rolex that sort of experience? Or is it just the status that makes that price so high? So I don't know if you have any experience with that, but I would like to find more of that just like pure quality. And something else you said in our last episode was like, focus more on value than cost. I do want to get better at that. But for me, I struggle, I think, to sort of distinguish between the two because I, I couldn't care less about status, but I do really love that quality. So any insight onto that? Yeah, well, first of all, Awesome to hear. I love, I just love hearing your voice and I love hearing anyone's voice when they get excited about their primary money dial in their rich life. So coffee and the way you talk about it, the ingredients and the tools, you can tell that this is a passion of yours. I think, first of all, that quote, you know, why spend less when you can spend more? That's a Dan Kennedy quote and it is profound. All of us intuitively get this, especially if you're a parent, there are certain things you are going to spend anything on. It could be the right type of diapers. It could be a car with certain safety features. We all intuitively get it when it's about our kids or our dogs. <laughs> My goal is to normalize spending as much on yourself as you do on your kids and your dogs. Okay. Everyone looking around right now with their little golden retriever at their side, it's like, yeah, you give your dog the best food. How come you think 10 times about how much you spend on yourself? It doesn't make any sense. So the fact that you have tasted that is awesome. Now, distinguishing between higher quality. Well, first of all, my fantasy has always been to take one of my friends who made some money and I just go, hey, come visit me in New York and I'm gonna take you out for three days and show you how to spend your money. I'm literally gonna show you the skill of how to spend money. You're not gonna like all of it. Some of it, you're gonna be like, okay, that was not worth it for me. But some of it, you're gonna go, oh my God, now I get it. For example, there are certain things that you can only understand once you experience or touch them. A certain type of sweater. A picture doesn't do it justice. A certain type of food, when you see it being made in front of you and you understand where the ingredients came from and how it was sourced. Oh my God, I never knew that much work went into this and how it tastes is incredible. On the other hand, I've eaten certain meals where I go, okay, I mean, that was fine. It's not my taste. I'm probably not going to come back here. But... Anyway, uh, that's my fantasy. Unfortunately, no one ever takes me up on it. <laughs> no one. Maybe the key is that I go, well, there's just one catch. You have to have an unlimited budget. And they go, what do you mean unlimited? They get really scared. I'm going to like make them spend like $500,000 in three days. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. But it is going to be more than you thought. And they're not ready for it, which is totally fine. I'm not going to force anyone into spending it. Here's what I would say as a real answer to your question, which is most people have spent decades viewing the world through the money lens of cost. That is their primary and sole money lens. When they go to eat somewhere, they look at how much it costs. When they go to book a flight, they look to the right of the screen to find the lowest cost. They sort by cost, 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 cost. And so there's a couple of isolated things in people's lives where they'll spend more. Okay. But it is very difficult to extend that to other parts of their life. But the way you're doing it is the right way, which is you find something you're passionate about and you start to explore. If I were going to encourage that, what I would do is I would look at your finances with you and I would say, okay, let's pick a number that you have to spend every single month on this hobby of yours, coffee. And 
let's just what would be the number that you'd spend every month to make this like a serious hobby for you i feel like i feel like i'm spending it because the beans i get high quality beans shipped in from around scotland and and that was the last piece of kit maybe there's something i could do where i could actually like go and learn the espresso stuff and the barista stuff that i don't do i just do a pour over if you say how much maybe another hundred pounds a month not even that much i guess Mm, try again (laughs) don't you have a lot of money like oh i'm not even spending what i should be in my model and we're debating over 100 pounds i don't think so (laughs) try it again Jeez, I don't even know what i would spend 100 pounds on that was like well we're gonna get to that (laughs) just pick a number 250 pounds okay fine 250 (laughs) pounds okay all right i know you can afford it okay because i saw you send over some numbers before so cool now we have a number that's quite aggressive for what you're currently spending. And and I love your comment. I don't even know what I would spend on. Okay, well, let's take a second to dream. Coffee is one of the things that makes you passionate, you love it, and you want to get more experienced with it. So how would you discover how to go deeper into that hobby of yours? So Edinburgh is a really big coffee city, actually, and they have great cafes who have lots of people that are passionate and lots of roasters. So I'd maybe go down there and chat to them about potentially learning more from them in some way, or if they had any recommendations for what to do for somebody in my situation, I guess. How would you use money to make what you just said easier and better? Oh boy, I'm not used to using money for anything. Hold on, everybody in the fire community, just listen. I'm not used to using money for anything, except to keep me warm at night as I wrap myself in my Excel model. Oh, I love my 52% savings rate. So good. All right, well, we're going to learn that skill right now. Okay, so you just said I might talk to some of the baristas and learn from them, get some recommendations. How could you use money to make that easier and better? I guess I, I hire somebody to do that. Yes, that's a, that's one thing. Great. Uh, what else? The only other the only other thing after I said the two under fifty was like maybe just a weekend in Italy with Jill and you know compare the Italian coffee and then go to France a couple months later and try their coffee. I don't know. I'm struggling. That sounds pretty awesome. Okay, that's amazing. So there's so many things we could do. First of all, yeah, you could hire some researcher to schedule a bunch of meetings with you and baristas. Second, let's say you met a barista, you really like him, him or her. And they're like, oh yeah, you know, next time you try to make your morning brew, do it this way, do it that way, try this. And you're like, oh, that sounds really good. And you don't really feel that confident about it. You could say, you know what, can I hire you for two hours to walk me through how I make my morning coffee? You know what? That's a fantastic idea because sometimes it just doesn't turn out and I don't know why. And I'm like, how am I going to figure this out? Because it's not something I can YouTube or something because I don't really know why that's not as good as it should be. That's an incredible idea. That's what money's for. You (laughs) use it to get help to do things easier and better and more joyfully. And all of us intuitively understand hiring a personal trainer or whatever. Or we pay somebody to cook food for us if you go to a restaurant. How come we don't just take the thing we're interested in and say, I'm going to go find somebody who's pretty good at this. Can you come to my house and help me understand this for two hours? (laughs) Of course. And then your idea to go to Italy with your wife is amazing. And while you're there, you can do a coffee tour and you can go behind the scenes and you can do your own brew and all kinds of stuff. That is how you start to use your money to really experience what is important to you. That's a rich life. Now, I've heard you do this sort of thing with people on your podcast a lot, but I did not expect the sort of like clammy reaction that I just experienced. So this isn't even a question on my list because I wasn't expecting this sort of reaction to 
those pressing questions. Why do you think that is? Why do some people just like sort of get all weird when they think of spending 250 pounds on coffee when they have absolutely no idea to do it? Like it was a really physical reaction I just had, which I was not expecting. I know. I love it. I wish we could be in the same room right now. <laughs> it's quite striking when you see how people physically react to conversations about money. They shrink. I'll see someone who's extremely confident, and the minute we start talking about money, they physically shrink into the couch. It's quite interesting. But you know what? I have a lot of empathy for that because I shrink when we talk about a couple things in my life that I know I need to do, and I'm not. So for you, I think that it is fascinating that most of us have lost the ability to dream about money. That's really the crux of why I wrote the journal. Because think about it, day to day, again, I'm speaking generally about most people, you get a paycheck, you pay your bills, maybe you have a little bit left over, and then you repeat for the next 45 years. Or if you're a little bit savvier, you take your money, you read all the fire blogs, and you do your investments, and you do another Monte Carlo simulation, and then you just repeat that. But there's a skill that most of us have atrophied at, which is learning how to spend meaningfully. I'm not saying you go out there and just drop money everywhere and stuff you don't care about. I don't do that. I have a very old car, my computer, my phone, they're not particularly new. Those things are not that important to me. But there are things that are really important to me. And so I actively seek out how to go deeper and make my life easier. And so I'm not surprised that you had that reaction and that you almost kind of seemed to go blank when I asked you, how would you do it? <laughs> yeah. But that's okay. It takes a little bit of coaching. That's why I started the podcast and the journal. I want people to see that you can be inspired to spend money, even if you haven't really done it meaningfully in a long time. Right. And this sort of made me think about one of your episodes, episode 40. I loved it. It was someone in a similar situation. They just couldn't spend their money. It didn't seem real to them, which actually is something that a couple of your episodes had that sort of same experience where you're talking to them and you're saying, what would a rich person do in this situation? And they can easily explain that. And then you're like, well, that's you. That's You are that rich person. Why aren't you doing that? And it's a disconnect between what you have in the bank, because that's just some number on a computer screen. It's meaningless. It feels meaningless to me. And I was listening to these episodes, like dreaming with them and being like, wow, what an amazing position they're in. They could just dream and they can do all these things. And then I kept having to snap out of it and be like, I'm in that position. Too. That's like, me. It was amazing to hear because it was more than one episode and they're, they're able to give advice to a rich person, but they don't believe it themselves that they have anything in the bank, really. You come across that a lot. It's frequent in a couple of different ways. First, for people who are not very savvy with money or not connected to money, it whatever they have anywhere besides their checking account does not feel real. So people who are fairly rudimentary with money or new to money, the way that they define how much money they have is literally how much is in my checking account. Okay. And one of the things I try to do is dissuade people from thinking like that. There's a few little beliefs that people who don't have a lot of money really follow. One of them is, however much is in my checking account tells me if I have enough money. That's not how you should be thinking about money. Another way is, I should buy something based on the monthly payment. You know, Car dealers know this and they prey on people. We don't want to think like that either. We want to do TCO, total cost of ownership. So 
some of the things that I do on the podcast and in my work is simply showing people a different way to think about money, such as that dad who thought money was bad and he should never talk to his daughter about it. Well, actually, money can be really good. And a simple way to do it would be to sit your daughter down. If they're really young, you say, okay, daddy's going to log in and pay our bills so we can keep the lights on. Would you like to help me? Don't you like light? Oh, do you want to push the button with me? Go ahead, push it and make it like, oh, let's celebrate. That was so cool. And then as you get older, it can be things like, you know, we're going to stay for one night in this town. Can you help us pick a hotel? Here's the criteria and here's the budget. And of course, by the time they're teenagers, they should, if you're taking a trip, they should be planning an entire day on that vacation. So we're going to get into some some of the stuff that's really been useful from your podcast and journal for helping me and then some of the other things that over the last couple of years that have been really helpful. But before we do, I want to pick out something that's in your journal and it says your prime spending years are from ages 40 to 60. So this was a big slap in the face in two ways to me because one, it made me actually realize that I'm 40 because in my brain, I'm still 20. And it was only <laughs> when I read that and thought about it again that I was like, I am 40. This is my prime spending years. And two, it was like, all right, I really do need to get serious about this because yes, I feel like I'm 20. So I should just keep saving, but this is my prime spending years. It's deeply counterintuitive and uncomfortable to acknowledge that you do have prime spending years. So let's talk about this concept because I like that it's uncomfortable. I like that it makes you think about your vision for spending. So in your 20s, you have a lot of time, probably not as much money. And so I remember, for example, we took a backpacking trip with two of my college buddies one summer and we stayed at the cheapest places and we were about to sleep in the train station and our, our guidebook said, don't do that, you'll be robbed. <laughs> and I just remember that trip, it was amazing. It was full of adventure and uh, sure, we didn't have a lot of money, but it was great. Then in your 30s, you know, again, following a general pattern, people start to earn a little bit more. They do start to spend a little bit more. 40s tends to be focused around family, but in 40s, people start to have higher incomes. And in fact, their incomes will peak in a few years after that. But we should also acknowledge that it's not just about money. It's also about time. It's also about ability or mobility. So you may have a lot more money when you're 75, but it's unlikely you're going to be going to Everest. It's even unlikely that you may even be traveling abroad, depending on health. And these are the kind of conversations that people don't really want to have. We have a deeply puritanical society, but in society that says, save, save, save until someday, but no one ever really talks about that someday. It kind of reminds me of Indian culture, which is don't date, don't date, don't date. Okay, it's time to get married today. <laughs> and everyone kind of rolls their eyes at that in the Indian culture, but how can we do exactly the same thing in America with money? It's actually preposterous when you think about it. So 40 to 60, in my opinion, is the prime spending years. You have money, you have health, and you do have time. Now, if you accept that, listen, you could disagree with me. You could say, I don't believe that. I think it's going to be 65 or I'm really healthy. Okay, fine. First off, I want to say it's not just about you. I know plenty of people who are healthy, but they have a sick parent mm. or uh, a partner who can't travel for whatever reason or can't do the things they want to do. So sometimes life is not just about you. We have to keep that in mind. But second, what I want you to do and using the journal is to create a list of things that you want to do now in the next decade, et cetera. 
So when you do that, you can start to actually visualize what's meaningful to you and you can start to do them. I just don't want people to live a life of, I will do that someday. And then, I mean, what a tragedy to live a smaller life than you have to. What an even greater tragedy to end up 70, 80, 90 with millions of dollars in the bank if you follow the FIRE community, never actually having done the things you want to do. Yeah, I completely agree. And we're going to hopefully help all the FIRE people out there that are like me and who are probably really uncomfortable with this conversation already. They already turned this podcast off, by the way. <laughs> this is going to be your worst listened to podcast of all. They see Ramit Sethi, they're like, no thanks. <laughs> or the minute I start making a joke about you know their Monte Carlo simulation, yeah. it, cuts too, it cuts too close, doesn't it, FIRE uh, people? That's, that's what we needed. I, I need the tough love today. That's why I brought you on. <laughs> and you're the only one that could do this. So yeah, the journal, definitely there's a lot I want to touch on in there. But before we do, the podcast, episode 40 was really helpful in the sense that, like you said, we can spend on our kids or spend on our dog or spend on somebody else. And in this episode, there's a woman who really struggled to spend any money on herself. And she was worth millions and millions, but would really rarely ever spend on herself. And she went to New York with her husband, which that was a whole ordeal trying to even get her there because she had to spend $300 one night on a hotel. And anyway, they wanted to go see a Broadway show. So she went down to the Times Square Broadway ticket office for like the last minute tickets or whatever, the half price tickets. And she went there because she's just so used to spending money. And you flipped it around on her and said, you know what, you've taken tickets from a family that really does need to only pay half price and that's all they can afford. I love this story. So Rachel and Jack, episode 40, they're one of my favorite couples. He had invited her. He was taking a work trip to New York and he's like, come along. She goes, cool. They were going to stay at the Moxie Hotel in the East Village, which is a pretty affordable hotel. And she looked at the price and it was $297 which is for Manhattan fairly reasonable. And she goes, that is outrageous. I'm not coming. She was just going to cancel the trip. And he goes, no, come on, I want you to come. And so she made them stay at a different hotel in Chelsea. And then when the price lowered the next day, they moved all their suitcases back to the Moxie Hotel. Remember, work was paying for part of this anyway. <laughs> so I asked Rachel, how much are you worth? And she said, I'm, uh... I said, could you say that a little louder for the mic, please? $5 million. Okay. Now everyone listening goes, oh my gosh, that's, that's so weird. Why, why doesn't she just enjoy it? But most of us do exactly the same thing. We do the same thing, whether it's with a restaurant or a hotel, the way that we act with our money is often rooted when we didn't have any in our childhood, teen years, or early twenties. In fact, if I ask people like, how do you decide how much to spend on a vacation? and we really get into it, they, the answer really emerges that they basically have a number in mind. That number was born when they were basically 20, because that's what they remember about how to plan a vacation, and they have not adjusted that number as they have made more money. So then she tells us about this Times Square thing, and she goes, we actually have no problem spending money on restaurants. We ate out. We ate well. We went to see a show. I said, tell me about that show. So she waited in the, the line for last minute tickets. This is basically way cheaper discount tickets. And at this point, I'm like, oh my God, Rachel, you have $5 million and you waited in that line. You didn't just go to the box office and buy the ticket you wanted. And she goes, no, I needed the deal. So then, you know what I realized? I'm a master of Indian mom guilt, okay? <laughs> and so I had to bust it out. Anyone who grew up with a Indian mom, Asian mom, many types of moms or dads, 
they go, you know what? It's my time. I'm going to leverage this. I'm going to weaponize this. So I, I did it. I was like, I'm about to become a guilt driven Indian mom. So I was like, Rachel, you realize that there is a family in New York for the first and only time with their kids. And as they saw you getting that last Lion King ticket, they saw this multimillionaire woman snatch the tickets out of their kid's hand. How do you think those kids felt? And she looked like she was going to cry. And I was just like, I had the biggest grin on my face because I'm like, gotcha. It was absolutely perfect. So, you know, listen, we have a little fun on this podcast, but the point is I told her, Rachel, you make too much money to do that. And I said, Rachel, you cannot afford to do that anymore. If you have $5 million, you're not allowed to be shopping or standing in line for the discount tickets and taking away that scarce commodity from someone else. Now, people get a little mad when I say, how dare you, Ramit, this is America, we could do whatever we want with our money. Okay, you can. But first of all, is it right? And second of all, is it actually serving you? At what point do you get to walk up to the box office and pick the ticket you want? At what point? Or in episode 16, when Amy and Chris are choosing their missions based on where they have Marriott points, I go, at what point do you get to choose where you want to go just based on where you want to go? Yeah, Sometimes that, that, that we let the- really good because he said, let's go to Italy. She started looking into everything she wanted to do in Italy. They have $8 million in the bank. And then I guess last minute he realized that his points weren't going to work or something. So they ended up going to Greece and the poor wife was like, I just got my heart set on Italy and here we are in Greece. And yeah, it just ruined the whole experience. And I feel for her because I think yeah. I'm sure I've done that to my wife numerous times. Should we get your wife on this call? Is this about to turn into my podcast? This, this is going to be amazing. Well, we've moved hotel rooms mid-trip many times, and she hates that so much. Why do you just... do that? <laughs> so, yeah, she would be great to chat to because she would be echoing a lot of the same things that have been echoed in episodes 40 and 60. The thing, I think that sometimes there's absolutely virtue in using cost as your money lens, right? Like if I'm going to buy some commodity, I don't know, nails or something. Well, I don't go to Home Depot, but if I ever did in a like alternate reality, which is my hell, and I walk into Home Depot, yeah, I want the cheapest nails. What do I care? It's a commodity. But I think that sometimes there are higher or different money lenses you can use. If you're going on a trip and it's something special, maybe the extra 50 bucks or 100 bucks actually doesn't make a difference. In fact, maybe it's not even about not making a difference. Maybe it's something you can turn into an amazing experience. You could turn to your partner and say, you know what? For this trip, I really want to do something special. I know that you've always wanted to get a massage at a hotel. I want to arrange it so the day we arrive after that long trip, I'll take care of all the bags and you just go and get that massage. And when you come back, we don't have anything scheduled for the rest of the night. You just take a nap and we can just relax. Wow. So notice the difference, not only in spending, but in positioning to yourself and to your partner. I'm not going there and saying, hey, it's, it's no big deal. Instead, I'm saying, this is going to be amazing and I'm going to do it for you. And for Rachel, sometimes what I wanted her to do in Times Square was to be generous to herself. Rachel and Jack had done an incredible job saving money, the classic I will teach you to be rich way. Low cost, long-term investments over a long period of time. They had made it. And so we find it much easier to be generous to other people than to ourselves. But Rachel and Jack won the game. 
And so they need to take their winnings. And in their case, their winnings might be seeing The Lion King or whatever show with better seats, with more ease to walk in and say, we don't have to spend two hours of our valuable time in New York waiting in line. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I want people to imagine is the possibilities of using money. And actually embracing money is a good thing, not an evil thing that we need to minimize and avoid or hoard. Oh, definitely. And since listening to that episode, I have this stack of old t-shirts that I've been carting around the country for the last, who knows, 20 years. Because I'm like, maybe one day I'll need a rag. <laughs> and You know what I mean? And now after listening to episode 40, I was like, well, you know, somebody could actually wear this shirt and actually provides a lot of utility. Here I am storing it for the last 20 years because I think I need a rag. And it's like, I can buy a $2 rag if I need a rag, you know? So it's like, I think that's really helpful for people that aren't used to focusing on themselves to sort of like get a little gateway into that and be like, well, actually, you know, yeah, this will benefit me because that stack of shirts is finally out of my life and I don't have to keep cartering around. But then also it's like, okay, somebody else is going to benefit a lot more from these shirts than I will. Yeah, that's a great example. It includes so many elements of some of my philosophies. You know, one of them is three dollar questions versus thirty thousand dollar questions. You know, a stack of old shirts, <laughs> what should I do? That's a three dollar question. Just stop. Let's not deal with these anymore. The next thing is generosity. Could someone else benefit from these more than I could? Yeah. And the third is being decisive. Mm. So many times when I talk to people who have money and struggle to spend it, there's a lack of being decisive. And in fact, I think much of what guides the frugality world is a sense of fear. There's this idea that I'm not going to go eat at that nice restaurant. That's not the kind of person I am. And anyway, if I did go eat there, deep down now, I'm afraid I would like it so much that I would trip and fall and have to eat at that nice restaurant every night for the rest of my life. And I don't believe that. I think you can have a nice experience and you can also trust yourself enough to know what is enough. That is really important in a rich life I'm not saying everyone here just twirl around three times, repeat rich life, and then go buy a private jet. That's not how it works. You need to be able to afford it. I talk about the numbers. I'm not just out here doing some woo-woo life coach BS. But I also think that you can trust yourself enough to experience something amazing and know that I will never let myself spend more than within our margin of safety. Yeah, absolutely. And that leads nicely to the money rules, because actually one of my money rules that I developed after going through your journal is to not limit spending on one-off experiments. Because like I mentioned before, we flew premium economy to the States, and then we flew business class home. And now one of my money rules is to fly premium economy on all flights over five hours, because that was well worth the double the price of economy. But then business wasn't really worth it to me for three times the price of premium economy. Maybe one day it will. And maybe, you know, I'll do another experiment once we travel with our new son, which that may change everything. But that's one of my money rules now because, yes, I know I'm not going to go crazy and just start living this lavish lifestyle that then bankrupts me. And those one-off experiments are really important for pushing my boundaries and finding what it is that it is worth spending on. Yeah, I love that. It, it is an experiment. I think we shouldn't be so worried about getting all of our spending decisions right. I had a program where I talked about the psychology of money. 
And I cover this now. We have a new money coaching program. And one of the principles I shared is that it's okay to waste money. Let me explain what I mean. I'm not saying just go out and just throw money around. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that when you're in your early 20s, you don't have a lot of money. You have to make sure that you are being extremely careful. So you might be looking at menus before you go out. You might be declining invitations because you just can't afford it. Okay, great. That makes perfect sense. But as you make more, certainly in your case, as you have made more and you have a handle on how much you can afford, once in a while, you're going to spend money on something and it's going to be a waste. And that might involve you got some late fee on some account And as much as I hate late fees, you discover that it might take you like six hours to get that thing reversed. In your 20s, you're like, yeah, I'm going to spend it. I have nothing else to do, and I'm going to make this company pay. At your stage, you might go, you know what? It sucks, and it's not fair, but it's not worth my time. Or you might try a certain restaurant or a certain product, and it's just not for you. And so instead of letting the tail wag the dog and saying, wow, I spent $100 on this thing. I'm going to make it work for me. I'm going to, for example, carry those things around with me to every country. You go, you know what? It's just not for me. I'm done with it. I'm selling it or donating it. So the more money you make, the more money you will waste. That is natural. If you are not wasting a little bit of money, that means you're probably not thinking about the possibilities of how you could actually be spending it. So again, just to reiterate, I'm not encouraging anyone to go out and waste money. I am saying that at a certain point, it is okay if you incidentally waste a little bit of money because you have a bigger purpose than eliminating all waste of your personal finances. That's a great point because efficiency and lack of waste is what drives a lot of people like me, I would imagine. But you're right. I've wasted far too many hours that I can't get back on things that obviously don't matter now in the scam of money, at least. The efficiency thing always gets me because you're right. There's a lot of crossover with efficiency and fire and people, they're like, how dare you not be efficient? And I just go, are you efficient when you give your husband or your wife or mom or dad a hug? Like, do you literally measure how long it's going to produce the maximum happiness? And they're just like, no, that would be psycho. I'm like, you're a psycho (laughs) by looking at everything through the lens of efficiency. Maybe sometimes it's actually not meant to be efficient. There are other virtues besides efficiency, safety, security, a lot of things. And so um, I want people to be more adaptable. If you're playing the game of life with money, you don't only have one money lens, cost. You have others and you use them in the right situations. To do that, you need to be well practiced with all of them. That's fantastic advice. And I can't believe it. We're already coming up to an hour that has gone so quickly. So I don't want to keep you too long. I can't thank you enough. Like I knew you were the only person for this chat and I'm so glad we were able to make it happen. Obviously, I'll link to your new podcast and the journal and IWT.com. Anything else I should put in the show notes just so people can find you? For anyone who has questions and wants to stay focused on their money, we have a money coaching program as well. We do a coaching call every month and we have this amazing community. We'll send you the link for that. Nice. Maybe you could post it. We'd love to welcome more people into that program too. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for me. really appreciate it. And yeah, hopefully I'll touch base with you in another three or four years and I'll have even more progress. <laughs> that sounds great. I always love coming on your show. I love, love talking to you. Thank you for having me back. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. All right. Bye. Finance.